Welcome, beloved listener, to Medicine and Psychedelics, a podcast where we discuss science, spirituality, and psychedelic medicine as healing modalities. In this space, we'll hear from experts in the field, share personal stories, and put words to the profundity of this work. I'm Dr. Lita Fatemi, and I'm buzzing with gratitude to open this container. Welcome. All right, so we're here with uh, the beautiful Jeremy uh, Schultz. Is that uh-huh. your last name? Um, I met Jeremy working at the Hospice of New Mexico. That is what one of my new roles uh, that I've taken on, and we hit it off. And he is the spiritual counselor yeah. at the Hospice of New Mexico. I don't know how long you've worked there, Jeremy. Almost two years. Almost two years. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And we just like started talking and then we started talking about psychedelics and then we started just like, it was just the outpour of like, oh my God, you're such an interesting being. And so here we are, you know, Jeremy um, accepted our invitation to be on our uh, Cautious Physician Medicine and Psychedelics podcast. And I'd love to hear about you, Jeremy. Thanks. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting to be here. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's funny because anytime we our paths cross now at work, in any realm that we're supposed to be in, <laughs> psychedelics come up, and we find <laughs> our way on these tangents to other conversations. So uh, it's exciting to be here and have it recorded. Um, yeah. So my name's Jeremy Schultz. I use any pronouns. I'm pretty flexible in that sense, and. Um, I'm a spiritual counselor with Hospice of New Mexico. My background is pretty uh, random and chaotic, but in the best ways, I think. Uh, I ended up pursuing, so early on in life, I experienced varying losses and pains. My dad died when I was six. Um, experienced partner abuse and sexual violence early on in life and uh, my brother died actually in 2018 so it's been this sort of journey of um pain and and what do i do with that how do i make sense of the pain i've never personally been a religious person uh, though i'm deeply inspired by all the traditions i come across and that's what drove my interest in pursuing in undergrad, um, religious studies and political science. That was my, um, I double majored at the University of New Mexico. And, uh, and, and that was after several years of, <laughs> of living in the wild of uh, Albuquerque streets where I was trying to just make it through the day, uh, trying to survive using varying paths to, um, navigate trauma really is what it was and so i i ended up um in seminary following my bachelor's i i had a professor who was teaching our jesus in the gospel course at unm who one day pulled me aside in my last semester and said jeremy what are you doing and i said i don't know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> and he said you need to go to seminary and i was like I'm queer and I'm not Christian. What is that? Where, where does that leave me? And he said, well, you know, things have changed and you can do some research if you need any help. 
I ended up going to, um, I was accepted into Hartford, it was then Hartford Seminary in Hartford, Connecticut. It's now Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. And I started my Master's of Divinity there. They had a cooperative program where you did two years, um, very focused on interfaith dialogue and conflict transformation, and then you would transfer to a partner institution. And my goal was, I want to go to Yale. And we were partnered with Yale. Um, I ended up meeting the admissions people from Yale, who were lovely, but I met the admissions people from uh, Boston University School of Theology and fell in love. Mm. And so that's where I spent the next couple of years. It was in Boston. Um, I, that's where I officially earned my Master's in Divinity wh- with a concentration in chaplaincy. I was especially interested in uh, ways that queer survivors of partner abuse and sexual violence found and engaged with the divine in ways that were not traditional because a lot of times that violence is interpersonal but it also stems from um, these systemic constructs religion being one of them and in that process um, I was able to learn more about myself my own experiences and make sense of how I was navigating it and to honor that navigation that a lot of times for survivors, uh, and what I'm finding in hospice now at end of life, is that people choose to do things, choose paths that maybe don't make sense from the outside world. And that's because it's uh, we're dealing with something that's really intimate and personal and uh, that may not be able to be understood by everyone. We make choices to survive or to go to carry on that are a lot of times viewed as profane, mm-hmm. um, including psychedelics, um, mm. for a lot of people. And um, so that actually, my findings from my MDiv, I was at, spent a lot of time with survivors, um, and I was engaged in the community in varying ways. Um, I found this really interesting to me... Um, way that people were using substances to make sense of their lives, whether that was numbing their life so that they could just get through or uh, doing deep explorations into their experience of suffering and meaning making using psilocybin, using LSD, using MDMA. Um, and so I, I went back to BU. I did a second master's in sacred theology. Um, my faculty mentor Jonathan Calvillo was incredible he's now at Emory in Georgia and he was the one who really encouraged me to um, look at these borderlands religions is what we came to describe our year of working together with um, that looking at ways that people who live on the out skirts of society or the margins in between worlds how people make sense of life and develop these their own rituals and paths to engage with the divine when structures fail them mm. and um wow. yeah so then after bu i made my way back here um my mom had gotten sick in 2020 it was the middle of the pandemic and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Sorry to hear that. It was rough. Yeah. It was real rough. And I has been in a moment of um, sobriety. I've struggled with alcoholism throughout my life. And 
I had been sober for, she was diagnosed, I got the news she was diagnosed at the end of August, and I've been sober since May, so not even like mm. two or three months. And I thought when I got the news, my mom's the only person left in my family biologically, wow. and so when I got the news, it was really earth shattering. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I guess this is when I start drinking again. And fortunately, that wasn't the case. Yeah. I had connections and friends, which is what I think the biggest part of this, who led me to um, alternatives. And so I did a really deep, um, for a couple months, really, I was using psychedelic substances to make sense of my world. What am I doing? My mom's dying. And I'm here in Boston doing a second master's. I can't visit her. She's in Phoenix. Um, It wouldn't be safe for her, for me to get on the plane and go. It wouldn't be safe for me to get on the plane and go. And so what do I do? I can't, I'm just kind of stuck in this little apartment in Brighton, Massachusetts, <laughs> which I had great roommates. Thank you. Uh, and <laughs> kept, helped keep me going. But it was, I turned to substance, to psychedelic substance use to, in that time, to really keep me going. And um, it was, it kept me going. That's awesome. Yeah. And what is, what was the, your choice that you... Um, the option that you chose in the moment? So, as far as... um, Yeah, psychedelics. To to help you, you know, keep moving. Yeah, yeah. So, um, mushrooms were my biggest, my Mm -hmm. go-to. It's funny because I was able to connect with uh, individuals who could then connect me to substances through Grindr, of all places, because... um, it's just a melting pot of nonsense now, but it, it can, yeah, it's a really, it, to me, it demonstrated the power of mutual aid and community mm. and that there's certain, certain paths that community helps you access and navigate mm. that are very underground, um, that they keep you going. Yeah. yeah. So uh, psilocybin mushrooms were huge. I, I was using LSD. Um, and were you a microdosing, macrodosing, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. Just, it's interesting because a lot of people from the community reach out and they're like, I have questions about microdosing. How does it make you feel, macrodosing? What is that like, you know? Yeah. Um, just for education. Yeah, it was a both and, I, for sure. Yeah. And so I was microdosing to to help provide the stable foundation that I didn't have in the rest of my life throughout just every day. So I would um, take a little bit in the mornings and would, you know, be able to handle life. Yeah. Uh, and then I would also use, I would, I would engage in macro dosing and would have really vivid and powerful visions and experiences that helped to um, process a lot of grief and trauma that I had held on to. My brother died while I was in seminary. And um, that was, I mean, if there's anything that tests your faith, it's the loss of loved ones. And um, and he died from alcohol-related heart failure. So Mm -hmm. I knew that could have been my path. And when I actually... My mom's lovely. She's so funny. She, when I, when I eventually told her how I had been navigating 
um, the news of her mortality and, um, and my own stuff, she said, well, as long as you're not drinking, I don't care what you do. I'm glad that you're finding a tool that helps and that's not alcohol. So beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Talk about openness. Yeah. It, it was a really important, I think, because then I ended up returning to Albuquerque, which is where I grew up. I'm not from here, but most of my life has been spent in Albuquerque. And because I, I wanted to be closer to my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, it, now she's in Phoenix, though, again. So <laughs> I see her. I'll see her next week. But she, um, b- b- returning to Albuquerque had a lot of its own grief and trauma related. I'm living in my childhood home. Wow. um, Which is, it feels metaphorically and spiritually haunted in varying ways to the best, in the best ways though. Sure. And I'm, um, and so psychedelics have come up again in my life. I guess they never really left, but they've, they've ebb and flow between, I think what I need Mm-hmm. And so there will be times when I am really ingrained in um, the ritual use of, of psychedelics. Uh, Carl Ruck at Boston University coined the term entheogen. Yeah. And um, for a, the spiritual development of psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in, in talking with people, I found that my path is not unique in mm-hmm. that sense. That there will be phases where you, where people will, um, will microdose or will want to go on a much more expansive trip. Mm-hmm. And then they're good for a little bit. They're mm-hmm. able to, they found what they, what was needed at the time of struggle and are then able to live life. And then you, you know, you, it's always there. It's always, mm-hmm. it's part of the earth. So you yeah. can always return to it. Yeah. 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 During this time, have you had, what kind of support have you had? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Varying support, for sure. Um, I mean, my mom has always been a huge support for me. So that's been an important part of my life. Um, But my friends, my chosen family are, um, I I wouldn't be where I am today without them. And... So, and a lot of them are queer, trans, especially um, trans women. I've have been trans women of color, <laughs> black trans women, especially have been mm. massive supports for me because while our lives and the 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 specifics that make up our lives may be you know, very personal and very. Um, not necessarily meshing together to form this one narrative that um, we're able to it, it, to share our experiences of being in this world that doesn't accommodate who we are mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason that is and um, and just showing each other one uh, love yeah uh, em- empathy compassion in ways that don't have a string attached like i'll show Mm. you love because then you know our company will make lots of money because we can say you know we we support you as a queer person 
Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. it's been huge. Yeah, that's incredible. And it reminds me of my own journey where um, I've had black women in my life who've just been able to hold me. And just there's a wisdom, you know, there's a wisdom that has come through um, for, for me to like support me through very difficult times in my life. Mm. Um, and I've always had these individuals, you know, in, in my life. It's very interesting you bring that up. Um, and I don't know if it's like a ancestral wisdom that comes, you know, from such rich land, such, such rich culture. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, we're all from that continent, you know, right. the continent of Africa. When we look at it anthropologically, yeah. which is fascinating, you yeah. know. Um, and, you know, I think one important point about all of this is, you know, for the individual, when you're going through a tough time, remember to connect. Remember to connect. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who've gone through severe depression and, you know, thoughts of suicide and suicidality yeah. where they feel very disconnected. Um, and all it takes is that heartfelt connection from another individual, another being, right. um, to slowly bring you back in, but don't give up on that. Yeah. You know, I think our support systems, the humans around us that, um, we choose to have around us. And I think that's another point to be made. Who do we choose? Yeah. And who chooses us? And who chooses yeah. us? Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And if we're seeing that it is, you know, the ener energy is being sucked out, like for me, working in a major institution was sucking out my energy on the daily. And so I would come home, and have nothing to give. But when I'm doing this, I feel uplifted. And for mm. the rest of the day, I'm like, oh, what's next? What's next? Yeah, you know, there's, yeah. there's such a beautiful um, rejuvenation that comes with heartfelt connections mm. and with people that you're in, in alignment with energetically, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, you know, while we're on the topic of support and women, I would love to pick your brain on the book that you were just telling me about yesterday that you were almost done reading or listening yeah, to yeah I, I actually just finished it last night awesome. it's so it's called the immortality key the religion without a name and it's by brian oh, i feel terrible butchering his last name uh murarescu oh cool yeah and he's um so it's it, oh, the secret history of the religion with no name is the the secondary title. The immortality key is the main one. He so I and I found this uh, because while I was at BU um, and I'm engaging in these interesting researches, I connected with Carl Ruck, who's a classicist at BU. He's a tenured professor. He's been there for a long time, and. He wrote this other book, The Road to Eleusis, the one that we had initially yeah. connected over with the image of I have that Demeter head. and Persephone. Persephone. Yeah. yeah, and in it he and throughout his um, his research work, he's done a lot to make the case that the roots of Western culture and religion uh, are f found in these psychedelic rituals of the old world. And 
that research landed him in really hot water at BU. So he was, I mean, up until even today, he's not allowed to teach graduate uh, students. It's been over, I think, 17 years that he's not been able to. They were really, because BU is in, uh, I mean, Boston and Massachusetts are very Catholic. And what he was essentially saying and what Brian then goes on and does a lot of research around the world to find is the role of the church in suppressing psychedelic um, usage as because of the fear of of this real Eucharist that would have these uh, be these ecstatic effects on people that people would have visions and would be able to engage with the divine in a really personal way um, that was threatening to the 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 Eucharist and that we see at mass today that doesn't have the same psychedelic effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brian does a, this book is really, I recommend it for anyone who's interested in learning more about psychedelics, especially in history and as a social justice issue, I think, wow. because he really um, charts the, the history of psychedelic use and its preparation by women throughout time. So, so cool. It's really cool, and it makes sense to me why uh, those two would then intermesh, that the, the, the women have an authority, a spiritual authority, that is also tied to a psychedelic, and why, I mean, people <laughs> have a lot of opinions and views about women and psychedelics in, in, pretty, in general, um, and so it can... Be, it makes sense why it would be viewed as a threat, why women with this power leading um, others into, into relationship with the divine would be a threat to these institutions that you're t- you mentioned. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's one specific... So he begins by looking at um, the Eleusinian mysteries the mystery rites, yes. Right. Yes. So the the rituals of Demeter and Persephone and um, and the relationship of psychedelics to death and yes. and being able to he says that philosophers have throughout time have told us we need to embrace our death. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's how you learn to live mm-hmm. is by embracing your death. And these varying um, what people would call a heretic um, ministries that have branched out throughout the world um, allow people to engage with their own mortality through the ritual use of psychedelics. Yeah. And um, and seeing the the journey of it because it begins with this uh, or history begins at least with with these rituals that center the, um, the Persephone's being taken to the underworld and her the rape of Persephone and the experience of violence and turmoil. Demeter's in distress during all of this, trying to find her daughter. And um, it goes from there to these other uh, branches of religion that necessarily didn't have names so you have um in dionysian rituals you women played a huge role, huge role in the um 
creation, the mixing of the potion, the... Kaikion, um, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And th- it's, um, it's interesting to see how it changed over time because it begins with these sort of graveyard beers. This It's a barley that has, um, has ergot fungus. Ergot. Yeah. And um, then that transitions to wine. And then you've got these um, spiked wines in some senses where people are using varying shade, uh, nightshades mm-hmm. and other... Um, potentially lethal substances and there's documentation of people um, in like early Christianity who drank a little too much of these potent um, specifically nightshade I think mm-hmm. we should emphasize <laughs> where it's <laughs> where that would have these terminal impacts but um, I think that just goes to the respect of the substance that you're consuming. 100%. And that's very, very important. That's, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is that education that we're, you know, in certain circumstances, you're playing with fire. You can, you have to respect the fire. Exactly. We have to respect these medicines and dosage is extremely important. Who you do it with is extremely important. The support system that you have is extremely important. Um, but, you know, these Lucian mystery rites, which it blew my mind when I was reading the story and then, you know, finding Kaikion, you know, on the yeah. on the actual um, uh, the bowls that they found. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was ergotamines. Um, and yes, you're right. It's it's female. It's all this sim- symbolism as all females being the leads um, and the goddess Athena was also one that was that was involved. Um, and, you know, these huge philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, right. all of them went through these mystery rites. And what's fascinating is that they also included the commoners. It wasn't just, oh, it's got to be, you know, that certain part of society. It was the commoners. And once they would go through these rites... They no longer had a fear of death, yeah. which is what you are um, talking about as well. And it's really cool to be in this world of, you know, hospice medicine together because I'm fascinated to see how we can move things through for end of life right. and providing medicines for our patients who have fear of death at the end of life, which is, of course, how could you not? Yeah. You know, if you haven't had that deep dive of, let's say, you know, some advanced meditators have been there or deep dives with some kind of a psychedelic medicine where you're like, oh, this is not, this is just a body that is um, helping me live this beautiful life. But there's so much more. Yeah. There's so much more. And we're so connected and it's just energy at different frequencies. You know, and this body is just a different frequency than our spirits and our soul and how we reconnect with each other is just, you know, energy frequencies. Mm. Um, just some thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes, go ahead. It's, I, I mean, it is very, I think it's really powerful in how these, these ways of engaging with with psychedelics and death allow, because I'm, I'm thinking you mentioned the patient, but I'm thinking even about loved ones. And we've yes. talked about that too, where yes. the, that 
because when and research has shown that if, if even just one use one time using of like something like psilocybin will can that people report it being one of the most important moments in their lives and being able to process things and to move forward in whatever the rest of their journey has in store and I think at end of life we see people um, really you know a lot of times the patients and not always everyone's death is individual but a lot of times patients are more accepting of their mortality than their loved ones yeah and the potential for psychedelics to allow for loved ones to be able to find the same peace that their their terminally ill loved one may find at end of life hopefully finds at end of life is i think a uh, I'm looking forward to when psychedelic hundred percent are useful. And you know, some of the greatest things I've seen happen is when you do work with families. Yeah. Man, it is incredible. Yeah. The transformation, whatever you want to call this metamorphosis, this evolution that happens when it's with the whole family. It's on a different level. It is. And you know, it's it's very interesting because each individual, I'm a huge believer and I take complete responsibility for my own happiness and we each have that, you know, and we have complete control over that too. Um, and to know that you have that is very empowering. You know, at certain points you're like, no, <laughs> I, I don't want it to be my responsibility. I want it to be somebody else's. Yeah. But when you really work on yourself and you evolve yourself through whatever practice it is that you're doing, you know, be it psychedelics or life practices in general, you see that your system changes and the system, meaning that family system, your community, even because now your frequency is different. Now your interactions are different. If you're coming from the heart is very different than if you're coming from anger that you've been holding on for the past 20 years. And so, especially the matriarch of the family, when, you know, I do this work with uh, physician moms. Mm. I do physician coaching. And as they're changing, we see the entire family change. Mm. The relationship with their teenagers, the relationship with their loved ones, and how they're caring for the family, you know? It's it's very powerful. Mm. Um but yeah, I'm really excited for for the movement. Yeah. yeah. It's there it's got so much potential. Um, there's obviously things that we'll need to be aware of like um, making sure that it's accessible to yeah. everyone regardless of class position or um, or gender or I mean who's yes. leading rituals, who's leading the um, the trainings, facilitations, yes. because that's really important. Um, as I've learned from Brian is that if it's, if you only have a certain population of the world who has control over um, engaging in the rituals of making this particular, uh, this particular um substance that will consume a spiritual or religious um, element, then you you 
do you gatekeep from who's able to access and yeah. who's what communities are really able to benefit so right right um, right no that's really important as especially as we move through and make it you know the pharmaceutical companies have made a synthetic version of psilocybin mm, like what does that mean wow. oh my god you yeah. know that's a little scary yeah it's scary but then is it more accessible but then you know the doctors who are prescribing you know majority i can say 99 percent of doctors because i'm in that realm yeah have no idea mm. about psychedelics um there's a percentage very like one percent who have had their own experiences and whatnot, yeah. but you know, just having the knowledge and knowing, hey, how how do I facilitate this? And I think all of us need to be facilitators, you know, yeah. um, to be able to provide it at a you know wide range because we really need it, especially right now with a mental health crisis that's going on. Yeah, um, and and doing it safely because there is a ten percent chance someone's gonna going to have an adverse reaction like a manic episode psychotic episode which is gonna last forever and you've just created trauma for an entire tribe of people a community because this person is out and you can't bring them back right you know that's a really difficult thing um and it's a challenge i think it's very important for us to be very aware and conscious as we move forward you know uh from all aspects of it yeah totally it, I, I've had interactions with people who are terrified of psychedelics because when they were 16, they, um, you know, toyed around with it at a party or something and, and had an experience that was not what they expected it to be. And so 30 years later, they still haven't approached it. Yeah. And there's even like hesitancy for THC or CBD because of this one... Um, experience powerful experience powerful I'm sure. and if it's going to be traumatic it's going to yeah. be deeply exactly. traumatic yeah 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 and so figuring out I, I uh, that's one of the way reasons that I like being able to approach psychedelics from a spiritual point yeah. because um, even if for people who are not religious which is a growing number um there's still uh, oftentimes a relationship with, if it's not necessarily spiritual, meaning-making. How do you make sense of the world if you if you don't have uh, like an orthodox tradition guiding you? And, um, and so being able to, to look at psychedelics as a one element of what could be a personal religion or a personal experience with meaning-making in the world is really helpful i think I love for people that. Yeah. i love that yeah the connection with spirituality and making meaning or love it <laughs> that's was your first experience with psychedelics when your mom was diagnosed it wasn't my first my first was so i when i was 17 i was raped by a classmate in high school that really um it I was I wasn't doing good for a while for a number of years. Uh, I when I finished high school barely, I tried to go to C and M and do an associate's degree and just couldn't focus, couldn't do anything. Um, so I ended up trying my own journey, and that's when I found psychedelics was through community in Albuquerque, actually, where I would 
go, I'd show up to a party somewhere at someone's house and there would be, you know, all kinds of stuff because it's a party in Albuquerque. So (laughs) 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 options are limitless. Uh, And I was, I'm grateful to my family for teaching me um, and not being so stigmatizing that, you know, all drugs are the same and all are bad because that's not real or true. Um, But it did keep me from experimenting with things that I'm really glad I didn't experiment with, like meth. And meth is so easy to get your so hands easy. on. Yeah. And, uh, but I've, my first encounter with psychedelics was shroom tea that was made, brewed at a party. Oh, that's like the best. It was such a good body feeling wow. that, and you know, a little bit of a, a cognitive change, but it was just, I felt alive <gasps> and, after, I mean, sexual violence is, can make you feel so dead. It's, I've heard people refer to it, survivors refer to it as soul death. Wow. Um, and so to have this, in a sense, for me, um, it was a very almost resurrecting feeling of I, once I've been dead and now I am alive and I'll die again. And I'm okay with that because I've been able to... Yeah, so, but returning to, so 2020 was my big return to psychedelics, uh, for sure. I was toying around with it, not toying. I was, I was, I was learning my relationship with psychedelics more um, during seminary, but that was when I realized, like, this is my spiritual tool and what I need to get through life. Hmm. That's what I wanted to hear. Uh, First of all, I have a very different but also similar themes in my life of also alcoholism, also sexual assault, also turning to psychedelics through that as a means of meaning making and feeling life on a visceral cellular level again. Um, And so I guess I'm just really curious and wanting to hear your beautiful articulations (laughs) on like how being in what a story you have and like how being in seminary being in this world of not raised in religion but feeling spirituality and being called to it in so many ways tied into psychedelic usage um felt in your body and your mind like how did the meaning making i assume go down like a a boulder was rolled down a hill on that like i just assume there's a story with meaning making and your brain space and education. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking about it. And I'm glad that we're on this end of our journey, <laughs> our shared journey, wherever, or this point in our shared journey. Um, I, so I remember really vividly, um, I, I got my, my mom called me on Saturday. It was the last Saturday in August. She had known for a little while, um, but she knows me and how I have responded to things in the past. And turning to alcohol, it was a big one. And she knew I was doing my sobriety. And so she didn't tell me for a little bit. But she ended up telling me the last Saturday in August. And I was supposed to start a class as an intensive, and I did, an intensive uh, one-week spiritual autobiographies class at BU the following week, Monday. And we had all these texts that we were supposed to read that were, um, you know, I was excited for the day before and then I had this news and I'm like, I don't want to do anything. What do I do with this? 
So um, that day in particular, I I remember using. Um, it was a, a risky move, but I did both uh, mushrooms and LSD because I wanted to. I I wanted to escape my life in the context it was in at that time, and. Uh, it, not only did I not escape it, I was plunged deep into the, <laughs> what it, what my life really was. And um, so the over the next week, I would do it daily. I, I went, I kind of had this, um, and I haven't really talked about this much with people, um, this experience where I didn't eat for like seven days. I was fasting. I was, I would only eat psychedelics and I just dove into the readings that we had assigned. So I was the main reading that I had been assigned because I was, the program I was in was doctoral level classes. Um, and so I had to present on this one text. It's Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands, La Frontera, the New Mestiza which became an integral part of my theology and, and how I live my life today. Um, but along with Gloria Anzaldúa's text, um, Audre Lorde's Cancer Journals was one that I read. And when you're engaging with these texts, um, I think even just without the psychedelic background in me, uh, they're powerful. But then when you are reading them and you're in, meshed in this ritual... It's, I was having these powerful visions and writing. I published my first paper a few months after um, the psychedelics and the queer art of survival. And, um, and it was what psychedelics helped me to do was to not just process my own experiences, but to um, hear and see in a really powerful way the experiences and stories that others had written about uh, and all of the texts that I read from at that time were primarily third wave feminism so it's women of color speaking from these intersections of queerness and um, that was my big thing queerness <laughs> but, but these varying intersections of life that uh, that really spoke to um a lot of what I had experienced, even as someone who's white and masculine appearing and presenting in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So the, 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 I, re I remember sitting at my desk that night and feeling as I was writing, feeling the, um, like as though I were visited and I would, maybe closer to the end of my life, I'll be able to expand more on this, but um, feeling like I was visited by Marsha P. Johnson, by Audre Lorde, by Gloria Anzaldúa, by these women who, um, these women of color who were guiding me in these relations of community and mutual aid and, and how can we engage with the divine in our own unique ways that that resist the oppressive nature of institutions uh, while honoring our innate relationship with what is sacred just by being human. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Silence. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God.
<laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, Jeremy. That's incredibly yeah. powerful. <gasps> and so eloquently said. I know. You know, and what you bring up is fascinating. Um, and I've experienced that too, where you are reading or writing, let's say using LSD. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have this vision of, oh, you're going out, you know, to you, to another planet. Yeah. Or having crazy visions. No, it can just be actually very, it feels the most sober mm-hmm. that you've ever been. And you see things as exactly they are. And the, the um, in fact, you see more of life. Yeah. Pulsating through in your environment. And the perspective of, you know, the writing that comes through, um, it's, it's, it's a different, um, I don't want to say dimension, but different angle, you know, that you would never think about otherwise. And I find that very, um, it's innovative, it's creative, it's, and I'm sure you have many more, more words for that than I do. <laughs> I give it my English as my second language. But um, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. A lot of us have a difficult time putting words into that profound experience that we have, you know, yeah. using different modalities of you know, these medicines. Yeah. Um, how would you describe it? Because you have done this work reading and writing while using psychedelics. Yeah, um, I would say that one of the big things for me is the feeling of timelessness that comes when I use psychedelics, Mm. that I veils between the past and the future become really thin and and permeable that I'm reminded that we're the time in that sense is constructed that we it's history in that sense is constructed and that um, we're the cosmos that we're all a part of is this eternal and I'm reminded in those moments that because I'm able to just you know I can I love reading and writing when I use psychedelics and people yeah are I've mentioned it to them and I'm like what? What are you? <laughs> you don't see elephants? I'm like, no, I don't. I don't. I would love to see elephants. <laughs> that would be magical. That's not what my experience of it, though, is. It's very, it's this almost, um, it's like an inward touching of what is sacred, of becoming with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, when I was using in 2020, uh, when I went on my journey, I became really passionate um, about engaging with trans spiritualities and worked really hard with other uh, folks around Massachusetts to raise money for varying and, and, and conversation and on holding space for varying trans-led organizations that were grassroots and it's what I was able to I think psychedelics played a huge role in that because it helped me to see that as 
much as we can be divided by the identities that we hold to, that those are also constructed. And we are intimately related on a cellular level, on a, a cosmic level, on a spiritual level, that we have varying experiences that we'll share, um, death being one of them. We're all gonna die. And being able to honor that is something that psychedelics has helped me to, mm -hmm. to get to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Um, and you've been doing some international work, which we were just hearing yeah. about. Yeah, tell <laughs> us about that. So I've been, um, so I, I mean, I graduated with my STM May of 2021, and I got here in Albuquerque a couple and of weeks later. what is STM? Uh, Masters in Sacred Theology. Okay. Yeah. And I focused on Borderlands religions. And um, since then, I've written and presented 13 papers, <laughs> nationally and internationally. Amazing. Uh, my, I was in Amsterdam in April, where I got my Marsha P. Johnson tattoo, actually, yes. on my birthday. And um, I, it's, it's been really incredible because I all of the places that I present at I shouldn't say all but a majority of the I of the the spaces that are held for where I'm presenting are theological based and religiously based it's so wild to me <laughs> it's so wild it's like the intersections I was like no way it's yeah it's nutters kind of <laughs> 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 so, so like Amsterdam this month or this year, I uh, the the conference was through the Protestant Theological University, and it was on uh, negotiating good life in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. And I was specifically looking at um, the use of technology to allow people to stay connected, who and to continue living in varying ways who are queer. So I was looking at um, digital drag shows and um, like um, sex work being done through OnlyFans or through uh, Just for Fans and um, how these forms of technology serve to allow for communities who would otherwise really really struggle and we saw that during the early times of the pandemic when everything was shutting down and bars and nightclubs were one of the first and that's where people uh, who are oftentimes feel not welcome in other parts of society are able to come together and find community and build community and drag shows i mean drag has been a huge part of huge. queer life for for a long time and um, when those doors are closed, what do people do? Like, how do you navigate that? Do you just die or do you overcome somehow? And being able to see how um, people that I was in relationship with, even if it was kind of adjacently, uh, were navigating these ways and using technology to build relationships and foster community in a time of real uncertainty and death on large scales that we are not necessarily familiar with a lot of times in America. Um, I think it 
it for me it made sense this is a spiritual community these are people who are mm. continuing to be sources of inspiration and are i mean we were raising money there was one um there's a performer named magenta with a j she's based out of boston and uh, started this whole digital drag show called Full Spin, which is now an in-person event, and raised thousands of dollars for grassroots organizations and for um, the performers individually who otherwise wouldn't be getting money. And so help people survive. And I think that that's something that um, I see with within drag and, and sex work con like uh, perspectives but also in in substance use that sometimes there's these paths that people take that help them physically keep going mm -hmm. when the rest of the world is um it doesn't want you to keep going mm -hmm. and so that was that was my um in amsterdam i was just recently at the American Academy of Religions in Denver three weeks ago and uh, presented on spiritual care and medical aid and dying. I think it's there's some really interesting parallels between um, consuming something that brings you closer to death mm -hmm. and, um, and looking at made from that perspective of compassion and um, so some real interesting overlays there. But also... Um, my second paper I presented was, I, I presented with a, a friend of mine, Tris, on, uh, it was called Death Reborn Revolution, Sailor Moon, Trans Futurity and Sailor Moon. Uh, so I'm really interested in, um, in these varying ways that people, especially who are queer, um, use to make sense of things that can mean Sailor Moon. Yeah. Sailor Moon is a, a, a vibrant... Um, manga and an anime that allows for people to imagine different worlds and, and the power of chosen family and the power of personal transformation and um, yeah. I love it! <laughs> oh my god, Jerry, you move on that edge, like between the worlds, you know, and bringing them together and how do these communities, the theological community, um, how are they, you know, interacting with you? Uh, yeah, it's um, complicated, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've been told that I'm a radical. I've been, when I was at BU, that was one administrator called me. We had to have a meeting because I was too radical in my theology, which is an honor. I mean, BU is it's where... <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. walked the halls of BU. And so it's like, I mean, who has called him a radical? Lots of people. Um, so it is, it is a mantle I wear now. It was hard at first, but it's one I carry. Um, it ranges because of... I, because I'm, I'm very blatantly and, and proud of my queerness. And I am able to draw on texts that are um, respected by varying entities and to say, well, if, if this person is saying that there's other ways of doing religion that 
that we don't necessarily have to define in a very formal sense, then how is that different from what I'm doing or, mm-hmm. or the experiences that I'm documenting? And so it's been a, some push and pull for sure. Um, what I'm excited about though is that, because I, I do feel that institutions like the Academy are very oppressive just in their existence. Who's able to attend a school? Who's able to, what's able to be taught? Who, what, what are you able to write about? Um, and, and so while I've faced struggles in that sense, I've found a lot of embracing from the practical approaches. So um, people who are maybe not in the academy doing theology, but are doing the, it's called practical theology, where you engage with people, you know, how does life, how does religion and spirituality and life play out in day-to-day contexts? Those are the relationships and conversations I've been able to have with people that are really hopeful for me. Mm. Because these are people oftentimes who have maybe a social work background or um, or medical background or um, backgrounds that are... I, I love theory. Don't get me wrong. I love theory. But backgrounds that are concerned with the real lives of people. Yeah. And I find that even the most orthodox of, of practical theologians who are deeply rooted in their own traditions um, are open to these new... They're not new. They're ancient. <laughs> uh, but I guess um, these different approaches to what is sacred and what's meaningful. And I've been able to sit down with people from varying... Um, denominations of Christianity, but also interfaith broadly, who are really excited about the kind of work that I'm doing because I'm able to approach people who don't, who both historically have not been welcomed into spiritual spaces and who um, oftentimes religions don't regard at all. There's, Mm. um, There's just no space to even have conversations around sexual violence in mm. in religious communities a lot of times so that's changing and so i've i've been welcomed by the practical the people who are on the ground working with others and um and i'm encouraged by that yeah 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 cuz it is a real my last year at BU was was a tough one and it, it was because I was really, um, I was going through all kinds of stuff on my own, but I was really engaged with trying to uplift trans life and spirituality and have these conversations. And it's discouraging to have people, um, tell you that you're wrong to have and 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 i don't get me i i love being wrong i love (laughs) failing is the only way you eventually maybe succeed or don't failure is beautiful though in lots of ways um but for people to disregard the the approaches i was trying to make and uplifting of certain communities and tools that you people used to survive um 
based solely on uh, a religious expression or view, it was hard. It hurt to, yeah. because I don't approach these conversations or my work with um, any. I try to limit my ego's involvement because I, I, I'm here to support people. I don't want people to suffer. I've suffered a lot, and I, I'm here to help others to, if 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 it's not to reduce the suffering, to at least make some sense of it and to, um, find hope in life and death, and to have people take a really um, like scriptural based approach that, that doesn't speak to the humanity that I have and the divinity that I have, uh, that we all share uh, and use the, <laughs> these ancient texts to disregard, um, or to say, you know, what you're doing is wrong. What you, it, it hurts. Cause it's like, well, no, that's my Eucharist. That's my path. That's my ritual. Um, and I found outside of the theological realm, but adjacent to it, um, support in navigating those fields, I think Mm -hmm. through like sociology, there's a really, um, there's a, his name was Luis Leon and he wrote Lyolona's children and it, in it, he talked about borderlands religions as these valid ways that people use to engage with the divine in their own personal way when institutions fail them. Mm-hmm. And we can see very clear examples of institutional failure throughout time. But sexual violence is one that the Catholic church has been struggling with for a while that we weren't aware of, but a lot recently um, and so what do you do when those institutions that you've committed your life to that have been, that were really important during childhood no longer serve you or no longer recognize you as an agent within the, the larger construct because of your sexuality or your gender? Um, and so having people like Luis Leon who are able to, from a sociological perspective, say, well, this is how people are navigating it. And it's a theological discussion on one end, but really it's for me, what matters is what is helpful for the person in the moment. Cause that's where, I mean, that's what I'm interested in. I'm souls and, and how many angels can dance on the head of a pin are, are <laughs> powerful <laughs> questions for someone else. Um, I'm interested in how the spirit and the body are in fleshed. Yeah, and how can we live this life magically? Yeah, with, with as little suffering as possible, right? Yeah. And every and accepting that every moment is going to be different, and that's okay. But how can we get to that space of hey, I'm more um, today, most of the day, I'm without suffering, right. and how and in a serene space, how beautiful is that? Yeah. Um, that's what I'm interested in too. <laughs> that's what we're all interested in. And you know, you bring up a very interesting points about um, <coughs> institutions. You know, I, I just left an institution, and um, what I see is two things. One is that patriarchal 
top-down, very rigid approach um, that we've seen throughout more recent history um, where men, you know, have like, mm, it's got to be this way or, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the way you have been approached, it's just, it's not personal. I think it's just the way a pattern has yeah. um, been perpetuated in society and in that particular culture. Um, and it, 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 to me nowadays, when I, because I also have gotten silenced in my own medical realm, you mm. know, about things that I'm like, it's not humane what you're doing. It is right. really not okay. Like, no, no, there, you know, anyways, it doesn't go by guidelines. Like, okay. Who came up with the guidelines? And it's, right. not, it's not humane, period, like what yeah. we're doing here. Um, and I'm not talking about all of medicine. There's a lot of medicine where it's so beautiful and what we do with our patients and how we connect yeah. um, with them and change their lives as they change ours. Um, but to, you know, and we're seeing this rigidity change as we're bringing in more of that um, balance between the feminine and masculine. We need both and we need everything in between. Yeah. You know, to say that we enforce everything with the masculine energy and then there's no room for anything else is something that has gotten us to this point of just sickness and illness from body, mind, spirituality in every direction we're seeing this. And I do see this shift happening where there is more of that psychedelic feminine energy coming in because it's so nurturing and it's so um, from the heart, if it's done by a person who is doing it from the heart. So you yeah. have to choose that guide for yourself. Um, but how cool to be living in this moment, right? On earth to see these changes happen as a lot of us are, are unplugging from these big institutions that are so rigid and yeah. plugging into what is humane and what is, um, what brings beauty to our lives? Oh. You know, thank you for being that agent, and, and you too, Elle. <laughs> Elle has her own podcast, and I'm gonna put it. Oh you my know, give a shout out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen to it. It's oh, it's amazing. Tell us the name, please. The Sacred Vortex Podcast. Oh. <laughs> it will be in the show notes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Any um closing comments that we have to have to be back yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely it would be an honor i would love to i mean i've i've just scratched the surface here there's so much there's to so much. explore yeah, yeah. um i mean i think one thing i i just really i i try to live my life around this is that while institutions and um, and the systems that we have do serve us in varying ways sometimes, that we all, especially speaking from a religious or spiritual point, that we all have our own relationship with what's sacred. And so, and there's a lot of history where that where that comes from. And psychedelics are not are intertangled in that in that spiritual history. So, um, making sense of, of the world is, I think, a personal um, task that we're all called to do. And, 
and that there shouldn't I, I would like for people if anyone's listening to this particular moment <laughs> that, um, to to trust in your your intuition and trust in your the divinity within you to choose and develop the rituals that sustain you um, Beautiful. even if they fall outside the margins especially if they fall outside the margins yeah Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. Yeah, you're sharing yourself so humbly and so beautifully, and just the humanity of you. It's like it's it infuses. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. One, two.